Welcome to Archive Treasures. I'm Rosie Hill from the Trentham and District Historical Society. Each episode, we will explore a topic ranging from Irish migration in the 19th century to plane spotting at Cranny's Hill in World War II. In this episode, we explore the magical world of movies. A night out at the cinema, drive-in movies, going to the pictures or the flicks. We all have memories of going to the movies. In this episode, we are going to look back at the local offerings and the Trent the Mechanics, hear from a few people who remember attending the shows, and also hear from Ina Bertrand about the early days of cinema in Australia and the making of the 1906 Ned Kelly movie. What about the early history of the pictures in Trentham? Who was involved? And when did they start? Everyone's, with which has incorporated Australian variety and show world. Volume 3, number 177, Sydney, July 25th, 1923. Mr Castle is opening a new theatre at Trentham shortly, according to advice received from one of the local film travellers. The date is not known, but it is presumed that it will be somewhere about the beginning of August. Everyone's, number 362, Sydney, February the 9th, 1927. Price, sixpence. The Showman's Corner by Harry Scales. When the city barometer reaches about 100 degrees, sweltering visitors rush to the cool, soothing atmosphere of Trentham. Then, Frank Castles gives them as many pictures as they can stand. But when the sleet falls and July winter winds go screeching through the pines, then Frank shows for the benefit of the caretaker and himself. It's only a summer resort, he says, but if I don't show in the winter, some other blighter will. Everyone's, with which is incorporated Australian variety and show world, Sydney, December the 28th, 1927. Price, sixpence. Frank Castles, of Castles Pictures, Trentham, is one of the many showmen who have installed the panatrope. Frank makes good use of it during the weeknights by hiring it out to various dance parties. If used properly, these instruments are an excellent proposition for a small show and certainly have a better effect than an out-of-tune piano and an unmusical orchestra. Mr Castles uses pictures from most of the exchanges and shows on Saturdays only. The town depends chiefly on potato growing, mixed farming and a local foundry which keeps a good number of men constantly employed. Everyone's, Volume 11, Number 537, the 4th of June, 1930. The Showman's Corner by Harry Scales Faced with two talky shows at Kyneton and the same opposition at Dalesford, Frank Castle has cut his show down to a fortnightly screening at Trentham. 
Situated between these two larger towns, he feels the opposition keenly, but at present doesn't consider his town strong enough to run sound, and finds by screening silence twice monthly, he is catering for the locals, who prefer to see, rather than hear, certain screen favourites. Frank, who is an expert showman, is the manager of the steel moulding department at the local foundry, the only industry in the town other than potato growing. Showman's Corner, the 1st of January, 1936, appears in Everyone's, Volume 15, Number 313, by Harry Scales. Ernie Howard, a new showman, has started pictures at Trentham, a pretty little town a few miles from Dalesford. Mr Howard is not exactly new to the picture business. He was, for many years, associated with Murray Jones at Oatlands, Tasmania. He is a garage proprietor at Trentham, and in running a regular show in the little towns, he hopes to present some of the showmanship inspired by Mr Jones in Tasmania. Murray, by the way, is the proprietor of a very fine little theatre at Oatlands. In the recent Tea and Tales session at the Mechanics Institute, some long-time residents of the area remembered when they used to see movies at the hall on a Friday night. Um, the dance on the pictures on the Friday night and, and dances on the Saturday night and we, we were in the shop of course and we, we'd run home and at half time you couldn't shut the door quick enough to come down to the pictures and <laughs> Betty and I and we'd run home at half time and open the shop and serve ice cream and lollies and then back for the other second half um, talking about the, the pictures, we came just one, one Friday to see, what's that movie that Yul Brynner was in? Um, that's right. Well, three, three, three weeks that was run and you got to the critical moment and the wretched thing had broke down, broke down. So I still haven't seen the end of that movie. <laughs> Go up to the projector room. Oh, there was yeah. no, just up and down the steps, oh, just for yeah. something Not to do. The yeah. well, I wonder what else is up there and when they... Could be the projectionist that was running oh, the true. King and I or whatever. Well, I don't know. <laughs> my, my earliest memory is when my mother's brother, Geoffrey, ran the films here at the theatre and Mum used to bring us children every Friday night. And no one mentioned that that Lindsay and Beryl Miller always were his assistants. And they manned the ticket box and they manned the door as well. I remember coming here with my twin brother and uh, Mr O'Malley was on the door. And the boys would be sitting on the right, the girls on the left. The lights would go out and you'd mingle. <laughs> <laughs> Um, another time we used to, I used to buy some jaffers from Kitty, <laughs> sit up the back and then the lights would go out and we'd roll them along the floor. 
<laughs> Mr. O'Malley would come up and chuck us all out. We'd go down the side, under the hall, and then up the back, and into the back of the stage, and back in. <laughs> um, and back to the uh, King and I think. Oh, we were most upset. We did not, never did see the end of it. <laughs> They got together and they were very happy. Trentham Historical Society Inc. Recorder, Volume 1, Number 1, March 2000. There was mention of talkies being shown in the Mechanics Hall in the last edition of the Recorder. Further information received states that the first talkies were shown on the 6th of the 11th, 1936, and that two films were shown, Naughty Marietta and Laurel and Hardy. The entry fee was one shilling and sixpence, or 15 cents for adults, and ninepence, or eight cents for children. One elderly gentleman from near Bluemount would always sit next to the aisle, with his dog curled on the floor beside him. Trenton Gazette, Thursday the 4th of January 1945. Koalas at Trentham. At the Pictures Show, held on December the 27th, shots of the release of koalas at Trentham were shown and were of great interest to the local residents. These pictures have been screened in many places and local members of the forces up north have seen them. As well as movie watching over the decades, there are many stories of filming for cinema and TV series in the area. The historic main street of Trentham has lent itself to filming of times past, along with the film set at Catamingan, Newbury, being used for American West and Outback Australian settings. Note, the movie shot as Before the Night is Out was actually released as Next of Kin. From the Kyneton Guardian, the 6th of November, 1981. Trentham features in horror movie. The streets of Trentham were used as a backdrop for the filming of a feature cinemascope film last Monday. High and market streets were blocked off to traffic while the shooting of various scenes for the film were taken. Shots mainly centred around the old Cosmopolitan Hotel. The title of the film is before the night is out, but this could be changed before it is screened. It features well-known Australian actors John Jarrett, who plays the part of Barney, and Jackie Kieran, who depicts the character of Linda Stevens. John became extremely well-known in Australia for his performance in The Last Outlaw, in which he starred as Ned Kelly. The film is to be a horror movie, where a deranged killer gets on the loose. Another country location will be used to shoot further scenes, also with the remainder being filmed at the studio. It is expected the film will be screened at the beginning of next year. From the Kyneton Guardian, the 21st of June, 1983. 
Baker plays active role in TV series. Well-known Trenton Baker, councillor Jack Groves, played a highly responsible role in the ABC's contemporary drama series The Keepers, which was filmed at Trentham today, Tuesday. Councillor Groves was approached by the ABC television recently to help organise the locals become involved in the series, which will go to air in early 1984. Six-minute shooting of Trentham's main street will be shown on Channel 2 in one of the nine-hour episodes. Councillor Grove's job was to organise the people of Trentham to have their cars on the street by 9am today. The scene was to be the busiest day of the year, when shooters were preparing themselves for the opening of duck season, so ideally the main street was made to look active, with local cars parked along it. When the Guardian Express called at Trentham on Saturday morning, the local baker, since 1950, was busily running all over town, collecting names in a bid to uphold the scene's requirements of 40 cars, two caravans, three utes with dogs and two boats. Councillor Groves also asked the locals to be on the street during the day to make it look as busy as possible. In addition, he held the responsibility of blocking the main street off at both ends once all the vehicles were gathered. Smiling proudly, Councillor Groves said, it's a feather in the hat for Trentham. It's a good thing bringing publicity to the town and the locals reckon it's all right too, he said. They'll be able to say, there's my car in it, when they watch it on TV. As well as the pride of seeing their vehicles, and perhaps themselves, on the television screen, the locals also earn some easy cash for leaving them on the street from 9 to 5 during today's shootings. $10 for a car, $10 a caravan and $5 a boat. It's not often you get paid for having your vehicle parked in the one spot all day, but quite often the other way round. Councillor Groves will also have the cameras on him as he loads his van up with bread from the bakery while preparing for his rounds. However, his van will not read Trentham Bakery, but rather Mulloway Bakery. Dusty was a book written by Frank Dalby Davison, published by Angus and Robertson in 1945. Dusty is the story of a dingo Kelpie Cross, who is employed to muster sheep, but is forever at war with his wild instincts. In 1983, a movie of the same name was filmed, based on the book. The description for the movie was the story of a friendship between an older Australian man and his instinctively wild dog. The movie starred Bill Kerr, Noel Trevathan and Carol Burns. The documented filming location is Lancefield, Victoria, but the main street of Trentham was also used in the movie, with dirt spread over the top of the bitumen to create the desired setting. Ina Bertrand mentions dirt being spread across the bitumen for the filming, and Newbury local, Jamie, remembers her father, Bill, driving his old grey Fergie tractor up and down the main street in one of the scenes.
Originally from the book Travel, Tourism and the Moving Image by Sue Beaton, published in 2015, and subsequently published on a website, Eclectism, on the 13th of November 2015, is the following description of Kataminga. Kataminga means hill of trees haunted by spirits. Kataminga suffered a name change by the new owners to Newbury Buddhist Monastery in 2014. It is nestled on 150 acres of rural beauty, surrounded by the majestic wombat forest in Victoria, Australia. The Kataminga film set is at risk of demolition to make way for a reception centre. The film set clearly is of historic and emotional significance to many, and worthy of preservation. In a direct link between the Australian pioneering stories and the American Western, in the 1990s a modern-day film ranch was constructed in Australia, near the Victorian town of Dalesford, two hours from Melbourne, known as Kataminga. It was used to film an Australian television series based on the iconic Banjo-Patterson poem The Man from Snowy River, as opposed to the highly popular movie of the same name as the poem, which was filmed on location in the Victorian high country. Released in Australia as Banjo-Patterson's The Man from Snowy River, the series was subsequently released in the US and the UK as Snowy River, The McGregor Saga. The television series concentrated on the adventures of Matt McGregor, Andrew Clark, and his family as a successful farmer set 25 years after the famous ride depicted in the poem and successful movie. The site was constructed in such a way as to be able to transform into a western set, with different aspects of the building having different finishes, such as logs for a western and paling for Australian settings. Consequently, the set was used to film a prequel series to the legendary US TV series Bonanza, 1959 to 1973, known as Ponderosa, 2001-2002. Unfortunately, the terrorist crisis of 9-11 halted all American international filming, and the film crew did not return to Australia to continue filming the series. The site is now run down. Even though people want to visit and use the site for low-budget films, it is not possible due to the condition of the site and related public safety issues. To return to a usable state would be costly and, according to the owners of Kataminga, such TV period dramas have gone out of popularity due primarily to the high costs of producing such dramas. However, it is used occasionally by students and independent filmmakers. Completing the Western Circle from America to Australia, via Spain, Kataminga has been used as a runaway Western set for a short movie, Gundown, 2004. This homage to the Spaghetti Western, written and directed by New Zealand-based Andrew McKenzie. From the book Elvis, Marilyn and the Space Aliens, Icons on Screen in Nevada, by Robin Hollibird, published by Nevada Press in 2017. Bonanza and its movies extended their lives with venues on speciality networks and DVD. 
By the turn of the century, the old program experienced popular resurgence through PAX TV, later Ion, airings. In 2001, the network bought a prequel series called The Ponderosa, featuring the boys when they really were boys. Producers again wanted Lake Tahoe locations, but their high-season, midsummer shooting made the process too expensive. They caught low season in Australia instead, where an exchange rate of 54 cents on the dollar made their budget go further. Filmed near Melbourne and Cataminga, the set looked over rustic buildings and dirt streets packed by tall eucalyptus trees. Known locally as gum trees, their leaves fluttered with pink parrots. Owner, Nola Whitehouse, joked about the dearth of ponderosas and pointed to six small pines. You should see the way they weave the riders in and out of those trees to make them look like a forest, she laughed. Shoot low, and that mass of gum trees in the background disappears, along with their colourful feathered occupants. Next point, steer clear of kangaroos as they hop by at dusk. Archive treasures coming from the Trentham and District Historical Society. As a first-time student, Ina Bertrand was a member of the Melbourne University Film Society and a regular attendee at the annual festivals. After a move to Eltham with husband Graham, they both became active members of the Eltham Film Society. It was a love of film that led Ina to return to study in her new field of interest. Following a past career in teaching, her professional background is in history, film and media studies, with a PhD specialising in Australian film censorship. Since moving to Trentham, Ina has been an active and long-serving member of the Trentham and District Historical Society and is a font of knowledge for all things related to the society. Ina will know is a common refrain amongst members. This circuitous route was how Ina came to be giving a talk to the local society in 2008 on early cinema in Australia leading up to the release of the 1906 Ned Kelly movie. Um, a talk mainly on the film industry in Australia. Sort of. Sort of. Partly of film industry and uh, making of a very early film on the life of Ned Kelly. Uh, You've no idea how scary it is talking to a sea of faces where you know nearly everybody. I've done this a couple of times in an anonymous way and it didn't matter in the least, but it matters tonight, so... <laughs> Here we go. This is talking about the film The Story of the Kelly Gang, made in 1906. And in order to understand it better when you get to see what's left of it, um, I want to talk a little bit about what it was like when it was made and shown for the first time. 
and that means you have to go back to the beginnings of photography. Still photography is invented in the middle of the 19th century and already from the very beginning they were looking for ways to make uh, a record of movement, to film movement. It was mainly the scientists who were interested. They wanted to know really important things like whether when a horse galloped all four feet were off the ground at once. And the only way they could do that was to film many, many films, sequential images very, very close together. And they mastered that round in the 1880s. And then they wanted to know how you could re return that to showing movement. And the first way that they worked this out was one that you probably saw when you were growing up, if you're my age, perhaps not so much if you're a bit younger, um, in fairgrounds and places like that where you would stand on a stool. I remember standing on steps, so I must have been little, looking into, through an aperture, down into a box, and you saw a still photograph with a light source shining on it, and you dropped your penny in the slot and you turned the handle. And what happened was there were hundreds, maybe even up to a thousand, still photos mounted on a spindle. And there was a claw that held each photo back just and for an instant as the handle turned. And what you saw was these films, these still images flicking past your eyes fast enough that it felt as though the image was moving. You might have also done that when you were a kid at school in the corners of your textbooks where you could make a uh, somebody skip rope by putting different images on each page and then flicking the corners of the page. That's the principle and that was called a mutoscope. And then in 1895 we got the first projected, oh, then after the, the mutoscope came the kinetoscope. The kinetoscope is the putting of these still images onto a strip of celluloid film and running it past a light source. And at first they made the film in a loop and the loop ran inside a box and you stood like you did for the mutoscope. You stood on the step, you looked down the hole, you turned the handle and you saw a better Im uh, imitation of uh, movement than you would with a mutoscope. But what you were actually seeing was moving images on a strip of celluloid that went up and down, up and down, up and down inside this box and then ran across a light source and it could be go on indefinitely, it was a loop. Um, the problem with that was that the box was about this big and about that high and the maximum that it could hold was 100 feet. So when they in 1895 found that they could project an image against a wall by putting the light source behind the image and running the image across in front of it like we know in a projector, um, at first they thought it needed to be 100 feet long. So the very first moving picture films that were projected were all those little cans, 100 feet long. Now by the time you get to, that's 1896, in Australia the, uh, the first projected moving pictures in Britain and France were in 1895. Britain was Edison and France was Lumiere. And the first projected moving images in Australia arrived in Melbourne and were screened in November 1896 in the um, Opera House, Melbourne Opera House, by a bloke called Carl Hertz, who was a magician, because everybody thought that it was magic to see images moving on a screen at that time. So that means that we got it in Melbourne less than a year 
after they had it in Europe. So we were pretty well up with what was going on in the rest of the world. But by 1906, some things had changed. One of the things that hadn't changed was there was in 1906, there was no such thing as a cinema. You saw your films in halls like the Trentham Mechanics Institute Hall or in live theatres, especially in vaudeville shows where you would find 15 minutes of film, little short films, 15 little short films shown one after another as an item on a vaudeville program along with jugglers and contortionists and tenors and whatever. Or you might have seen them in your local hall and they might even have been uh, a whole program of films because by 1906 people were used to film and they liked to see programs about events that were happening at the, at the time. So there were whole long programs, like two hours long shown, of um, the various wars, the Boer War in particular, uh, Queen Victoria's funeral, the inauguration of the Australian Commonwealth in 1901. People would go along to their local hall and they would sit there and they would see a number of films uh, all on this one subject. Only by now, by 1906, instead of 100 feet long, which is what they began with in 1896, the standard length of a reel was 1,000 feet. And it lasted somewhere around um, 12 to 16 minutes to screen that. And the reason that I can't tell you an exact length of time is that it was still hand-cranked. The camera was hand-cranked and the projector was hand-cranked. And part of the reason that we got the term flickers was that when the projectionist cranked slower than the camera had originally cranked, you ended up with the image going slow and flick, flick, and you could see the black between the, the separate images. Whereas if it, it was exactly the same speed as the camera had operated, it would look like absolutely normal, natural movement. So they were called flickers. They were screened in halls and theatres. They were up to a thousand feet a reel and you could have a whole program with just films by 1906 if you wanted to. There were also by then a few longer films. In 1897 they filmed the Corbett Fitzsimmons prize fight in America. It was 11,000 feet long and it took 70 minutes to project. And it was shown all over the world including in Australia. I've got the review from the Melbourne Argus here and it describes a 14-round combat in all its varying lights and shades, down to the most minute detail of the contest, and lasting for over an hour and a half. Now, I personally can't imagine anything more boring and dreadful <laughs> than 70 minutes of watching people punch the lights out of somebody else. However, a fashion was started for fight films, and entrepreneurs very quickly cottoned on to the fact that these were popular and they could make money, and so, although they did film other genuine prize fights that were important title bouts, they also filmed two blokes dressed up as boxers who were told that this strip of film lasts 10 minutes and in that 10 minutes this, this, this and that will happen and you will be knocked out. Um, and these were just as popular as the um, proper films about real fights. And there's a similar problem with the religious films. The religious films also, some of them were quite long. In 1898, there was a passion play film that was 
said to be two to three thousand feet long, and it was shown in the, in America with hymns during the breaks for real changes. Um, and in Melbourne in December 1899 and in Hobart in August 1899, there was an, the Passion Play of Oberammergau was advertised with the Jubilee Singers and narrated by Mr Eugene McAdoo. And it said, interest centred on the pictures which rapidly sketched the Saviour's life on earth and at the same time gave a convincing idea of the grand solemnity of the Bavarian peasants' performance. Now this was implying that it was an actual record of what happened in Oberammergau, that it was virtually a newsreel. You know, the camera was there and it filmed what would have happened anyway, whether there'd been a camera there or not. However, in January 1901, the bulletin says this, the recent biopictures of the genuine Oberammergau Passion Play set one thinking of the audacious fakes, which the late Orpheus McAdoo introduced to Australia a couple of years ago. They professed to have been taken at Oberammergau, though the latest performance of the Passion Play up to that time had happened about three years previous to the invention of the biograph. <laughs> so the religious films were then like the fight films. There were genuine ones that were recording what was really happening, and there were fakes, ones that had been performed in front of a camera for the sake of making money out of them in the cinema later on. There were also longer travel films sometimes. There were films, as I said, about uh, particular wars. There's, in May 1900, an ad for the Athenaeum Hall, two hours in South Africa with the troops, the war by biograph, seven miles of film. The war pictures are all genuine and taken on the spot represented and under no circumstances are faked or rehearsal war films represented. So the audience was not a naive audience by 1906. They knew what the difference between what was real and what was faked. All right, that's what films were like in 1906. Now, Kelly. Um, there's the Kelly reward poster. And you've all seen the image of Kelly. You all know what he looks like, don't you, before, before he was hanged. Um, he was hanged in 1880. And if you think about it, that's 26 years before the film. Now, I think everybody in this room can remember back to 1980. Is there anyone who can't? Right? So most of the audience in the 1906 film had lived through the Kelly episode and they knew a lot about it. And again, just as they weren't naive film goers, they weren't naive about Kelly either. They knew the story, especially if they were in Victoria. The further you went away from Victoria, the less they might know. And the film went overseas, and perhaps the audience in America and England might not have known as much as the Australian audience did. But especially in Victoria, you could assume that people knew. They knew the names of the four members of the gang. They knew the various incidents. What you will see in the film is the opening incident where uh, Sergeant Kennedy makes an advance to Kate and she rejects him and, and he gets shot in the, in the hand, which starts the whole business about the police chasing the Kellys. You'll see them in the Wombat Rangers with the, um, uh, the Stringerbark Massacre where the policemen were shot, which was when they were first outlawed and the price was put on their head. You'll see them in the um, Young Husband Station sequence where they took over the station and held the people hostage in the station and the hawker who arrived and the group of sportsmen who'd been fishing and the local station master from Euroa who'd come to visit, they kept them all hostage and then they rode off into Euroa and uh, 
held up the police station in your room. <coughs> you don't get that bit, you just get the young husband station bit. And then you get the final Glen Rowan scene. And everybody who saw the film knew all these things about the Kellys. Not only had, they, had it happened within their lifetime, but also Kate Kelly almost immediately set off around Australia with a show in which she was the lead actor and she performed about the Kellys. And there were stage plays all the way through every single year in Melbourne between, 18, between 1880, oh, I think the first one was a few years later, it might have been about 1886 onwards, every year there would be a Kelly film, at, a Kelly play at least once in the big theatres in the city. And people flocked to them and they toured around the bush and people flocked to them there too. So the story was being um, consolidated within the mythology of of Australian history for the audience. So we get to 1906 and the story of the Kelly Gang. The audience was ready. They knew the story from newspapers, from plays and other performances. They were enthusiastic about film. They understood the limitations of film. Film was black and white then, of course, unless it was tinted. And they very often did tint uh, whole sections of a black and white film. Red meant fire, bushfire in particular, or danger. Uh, blue, dark blue meant night. Green was for, was for the sort of idyllic... Um, yes, romance and that sort of thing. Um, so people understood that that would be mostly black and white, but there'd be tinted sections. They knew that there wouldn't be any sound on the film, but there was always sound in the presentation. Always. In the big city theatres, you'd get a whole orchestra with a specially written score. In Trentham Mechanics Institute, you probably had somebody playing a piano. That was but my mum. Hmm? My mum and her sister. In 1906? They played for the silent pictures there. Yeah, but that early? 1906? No, not that early. She no. was born in 1905. So right. So she wasn't quite that precocious. <laughs> <laughs> so even in places like Trentham, you never saw a silent film silent. There was always sound. And the, sometimes the musicians would provide sound effects as well, you know, thumping, banging, those sort of things. But sometimes they had sound effects behind the screen as well. And there's a lovely review of the story of the Kelly Gang in, in the bulletin once where the writer comments, um, sometimes it was impossible to, hit, to see the picture for uh, shouts, gunshots and wild cries. So um, they did a lot of that. There was often a narration, uh, and that would be a lecturer, like standing here and with a pointer, describing what's going on on the screen. Um, they, for the Kelly Gang film, they put out a, a little booklet at the beginning that described the contents of every one of the six scenes. And people were supposed to just look at that, and there were no subtitles, intertitles at all. But very quickly they realised that people needed a bit more help than that because you couldn't read while you were looking and uh, maybe people who didn't know the story wanted a bit of help. So they then had a narrator who would tell the story while the image was going on the screen. And gradually over the time that it was being screened, between 1906 and when it kept being going around the country for years, by the time it stopped going it had intertitles as well. Um, so the audience understood all that. They knew the difference between fact and fiction. They did not confuse the two. They did not imagine that this was really Ned Kelly. They were much brighter than that. Um, 
The film premiered at the Athenaeum Hall on the afternoon of the 26th of December 1906. It toured all around the country, and that means all the country areas and every state, and it went to England and New Zealand with enormous success. And I thought, to sum up what this success was like, here's the review in the Daily Mercury in Maitland in March 1907. The biograph pictures of the Kelly Gang produced at the Town Hall West Maitland last evening under the direction of Mrs Jane N. Tate proved a greater success than any similar entertainment ever given in Maitland. The large hall was crowded to excess by a delighted and enthusiastic audience, which greeted the splendid series of pictures shown with the most demonstrative applause. Long before the hour for commencing the entertainment, every seat in the hall was occupied, and for latecomers standing room only was available, and not too much of that. Seeing the wonderful success that attended the exhibition of these sensational and realistic pictures in Sydney and Melbourne, it was anticipated that they would produce a great attraction in Maitland, but no one in the wildest flight of fancy would have suggested such an audience as filled the town hall last evening. The approbation of the large audience was signified by frequent and hearty applause. The season was for one night only. Now nowadays you couldn't have standing room in a cinema, but you can just imagine that kind of crowd that cheered and roared when, when it was going on. Now when you read about or hear about this film, it's often claimed that it was the first feature picture in the world. And this is a claim that you need to think about a bit because it depends on how you define your terms. Um, feature has meant something different at various stages in the history of film. Nowadays we think of a feature film is the one that we go to the cinema to see. Uh, and we only ever see one feature, but I think that most people here can remember back into the 50s when you saw a double feature program, mm -hmm. and the feature that you saw before Interval was maybe only about 50 minutes long, 50 to 70 usually, and it was a B feature, it was the, the Western or the comedy or whatever, but that wasn't the one you went for, that was just the, the extra bit. And then after Interval, you saw the A feature, the one you really went for that had the stars and it probably lasted for 70 minutes to about maybe 90. They weren't often longer than that because double feature programs were quite long and the very long feature films that we're used to now would have been a problem on a double feature. Well, that's what we think of as feature, but in 1906 it didn't mean that. Um, any film could be featured on a program and a feature film was just a film that was featured on a program and it was featured in the same way that, say, the most important of the vaudeville items would be featured. That would be the star act for the night would be the feature. Well, the star film for the night would be the feature, and it might only be one reel long. It might only be a thousand feet long. So it's a bit hard to call it a feature. What it undoubtedly was was a multi-reel film, and they were not usual in 1906. There were multi-reel films that were uh, of things like the passion play or the fight films. I've described them already. But films that were made, that were dramatised narrative story films, this was the first one we know of in the world. Um, it was at least 4,000 feet long when it was made. Um, it was advertised sometimes as being six reels long, and it grew in the first year. They added a whole extra scene. Uh, the Gerildery sequence was added after the film had been released, and... There were also other bits added along the, along the way. Um, and it was recognised from the very beginning as being different from any other film that anybody had shown in Australia or anywhere in the world. And if you compare it with Britain, for instance, the first 
Um, one real feature made in Britain was made in May 1906. It was called Dick Turpin's Ride to York and it had nine scenes and it was one reel long. Um, in October 1911, um, An Adventure of Rob Roy was still a thousand feet long. Multi-reel features were common in Britain by 1913, but they were still mainly two to three reels and we're talking about the Kelly film being four to six reels already by 1906. And America was not further advanced than Britain. We're not talking about Hollywood dominance here. Hollywood, the suburb of Los Angeles, was built in 1913 and Hollywood film took over the world during World War I. So by 1906, Hollywood didn't mean anything at all and American films were no more common on Australian screens than Scandinavian or Australian films were. The commonest films that were shown in Australia came from Britain, France and Italy at, in 1906. Um, so there wasn't an American competitor for this being the first film and in fact Roberta Pearson in the Oxford Companion to World History lists Dante's Inferno and the Life of Moses from 1909 as the earliest multi-reel features internationally and we think she's just plain wrong. Um, until we get any evidence to the contrary we think this film, The Story of the Kelly Gang, was the longest dramatised narrative film produced in the world to that date and that is something that we can be proud of as Australians I reckon. Film historians Andrew Pike and Ross Cooper list 93 story films produced in Australia between 1906 and 1912. Of these, at least 63, or about two-thirds, were more than one reel. That is, they were already multi-reel films. And of those, 56, or 60%, were more than 2,000 feet, and 43, or 46%, were more than 3,000 feet. So it looks to us as though uh, in that very early period between 1906 and 1912, uh, Australia had what is admittedly a very small but a feature film industry, well before any other country in the world did. So what you're going to see is, I think, the world, what's left of the world's earliest feature film. The problem is that a hundred years have done some terrible damage to it. You'll see some of the damage on the film itself. The four bits that have been recovered from very different places over time have just been put together here. Um, the archive, the National Film and Sound Archive, have done this reconstruction and they are selling also a package with a DVD. The DVD contains what you're going to see. It also contains a study version where they've used stills and bits out of um, the program booklet and things like that to try to reconstruct more of what it would have looked like when it came out in 1906. It still isn't over an hour long but um, it's a much more coherent version than you'll get here. This one is just the bits put together. Uh, there's some commentary on the DVD and it comes with a booklet that um, was been written by me and Bill Rout and all that comes in a package which you can buy if you feel like, which is why I agreed to do this. Um, oh, absolutely. Uh, I wouldn't put myself through this without. Okay, so now um, we're ready to see the film.
Archive Treasures is produced on Jaja Wurrung country. We acknowledge and pay respects to the traditional owners, and we would also like to extend our respects to the elders, past, present and emerging. Archive Treasures is brought to you by the Trentham and District Historical Society. If you would like to hear further episodes, they are available from most podcasting apps or on our website, www.trenthamhistoricalsociety.org.au or you can go to our Facebook page, Trentham and Districts Historical Society Australia. I hope you can tune in next time for more archive treasures.